Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. And I am here in beautiful Fort Langley, just outside of it, with Susan McCaslin. Hi, Susan. Hi, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Susan is, well, I met her back in 1991. She was my professor at Douglas College in New Westminster. And she first taught me a classical and biblical literature and then modern poets. And through her, I was introduced to Margaret Avison, I remember very well, and also in great depth, William Blake. And uh, we've been in touch over the years. Uh, Susan edited a, a spiritual poetry anthology years ago that I was in. And she was actually my bridesmaid in 1998 at my second <laughs> wedding. We won't say to whom, but yes, and it was in a forest near uh, the Burnaby home where I grew up. And yeah, she's been my mentor and my guide and my friend and somebody who's believed in me over the years as I've believed in her. And so all these many years later, we're still uh, connected and in touch. I'm going to read you her bio, and then she's going to read you her poem, actually, that we recorded earlier in the Hanshan Forest that's called O Lover's Tree. And then I'm going to ask her questions on the poem, and we're going to proceed thusly. So, Susan McCaslin is a BC poet residing outside Fort Langley, BC, who has published 16 volumes of poetry, including her most recent Heart Work from Ecstasis Editions 2020, the fateful year that so many beautiful books of poetry came out and vanished and hopefully will be resurrected. A chapbook, Cosmic Egg, came out through the Alfred Gustav Press in 2021. Wonderful press run by David Ziroth. have also had a chapbooks out from that press. Since retiring, or as Susan used to say, refiring from teaching English and creative writing at Douglas <laughs> College in 07, she has been receiving and crafting poems, giving poetry readings, offering poetry workshops, mentoring younger writers, editing an anthology on birds, doing occasional reviews, very, very important, another poetry reviewer, and editing a volume of the posthumous poems of E.D. Blodgett, who is from Edmonton, where I live. When not writing, reading, dreaming, or being with family, Susan can be found practicing yoga or walking with her dog, Rosie, who's so cute, along the Fraser River, better known to the Kwantlen First Nations as the Stolo. Susan initiated the Hanshan Poetry Project in 2012, which helped save an endangered forest in Glen Valley near her home. I fell in love with a forest and became an activist. But first there was you. One, no two, two cedars twinned around the heartwood of a tree husk. A realm, two torsos attuned, stretched limb to limb, two root systems wet entangling. Two of you ascending, splitting, reuniting, like Plato's round being against the gods of progress. There are those who would chainsaw your wide open hearts. And yes, you pant toward union under the sky canopy, briding the sore of day, palm to palm like holy palmer's kiss, blessed jointure 
each to each, pressed each into the other's ah. So, silenced at your moss knees, I surrender all to the forest which makes and remakes your lust and breath, your aching, stately pavan. Thank you, Susan, for that beautiful reading of O Lover's Tree in the Hanshan Forest. It's such a glorious day, so sunny and blue and green. And we got to walk around the forest and actually see the Lover's Tree in person. So that was a fantastic moment. And Susan's husband, Mark, had put, uh, what did he do? He um, A ribbon kind of marking it. If you stand and, and look straight west from through the trees you'll see the uh, lover's tree because it's not on the main path and you have to go through a uh, mucky trail to actually get there right right <laughs> so so with my my parents are here as well and my dad led the way lunging through the marsh <laughs> so that we could actually see this the tree the intertwining trees in person so it was very beautiful so I'm wondering, first question uh, grounded in this poem, has nature always been crucial to your vision of the world and your art or is something that's developed more the more you've written or, you know, in terms of its importance and, you know, essential nature? Now, that's a good question, Catherine. I would say that um, uh, there's two sides of me as a little girl. One was um, I used to just go to the backyard and climb into an apple tree and sit up there and mm. sing. <laughs> What and, would you sing? Oh, just little ditties from the radio or whatever. And I I was told I had a lovely voice. Mm. And so I would think the neighbor, maybe on the other side of the fence, was hearing me sing. And I I wanted to be an opera singer. Oh. Um, so I think that... I remember I, your passion for opera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I don't have... I have a, a, a nice voice, I suppose, but it's not strong enough. And then... Weren't you I learning guess, to sing Italian opera? Yeah, I did take some opera yeah, lessons I while that. I was in, in teaching at uh, Douglas. Uh -huh. But the opera uh, teacher finally said, well, now that you've done that, um, you know, I think you'd be better to just join a choir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was getting the hint. at least they were honest. <laughs> but I think musicality has been important to me. I always loved nursery rhymes. And mm. then I, when I started reading a lot of... I read before I went to school because I was, for some reason, um, my parents didn't uh, weren't readers at all. Mm. Um, my dad was an engineer and my mom uh, was a housewife in the 50s who wasn't interested in reading. And mm. uh, my aunt left a lot of her books in our basement. And mm. I would go down there and pick up these uh, series like um, Journeys Through Bookland and um, My Book House. Mm. They would start with... English fairy tales, Mother Goose, and it would then go to sort of the romantic and Victorian mm -hmm, poets mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Robert Louis Stevenson, mm -hmm. or so. and um, so I was exposed to that um, just through. Uh, and sometimes my dad would read to me, read poems, and even though he was an engineer <laughs> and not a reader, he had um, uh, been asked to memorize. Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven oh. when he was in high school. Oh, I remember so that dinner, you did the same thing. At the dinner table, he would start, uh, once upon a midnight dreary, as I wondered, <laughs> weak and weary. And that's the only poem he knew. 
And then because of that, I ended up doing my master's thesis on Edgar Allan Poe. The haunting. <laughs> yeah, but um, as I tried name, to memorize that once. That is not an easy poem no, to memorize. He knew, it's he had so the long. Whole thing by heart. Yeah. So anyway, back to your about nature. Mm-hmm. I was a dreamy child. Um, my head. I was called Susie Head in the Clouds, <laughs> and I had a dream. Uh, I wanted to go to Wonderland and fall through the mirror like mm. Alice and disappear into another reality. So in some ways, I was not as connected to nature as some kids who are really active mm. physically. Right. And um, and yet, somehow that that world, to me, had natural beauty in it, but it was of the imagination. But it was, at one point, my, my dad took me to a, the most beautiful park he knew, mm. and and stuck my head in a flower and said, here's Wonderland, right here. Oh, what a <laughs> lesson. stuck with me. Yeah. And um, for a while, you know, I've been very, uh, you know, interested in ideas and concepts and so on. But joining up with my partner, my husband, Mark, an environmentalist and a, a nature boy, when, mm-hmm. since he was, he was camping out when, since he was 12 or earlier, mm. um, he always points out, look at this bush, look at, and mm. tells me the name. And uh, he greatly helped me increase my attention to right. nature. Exactly. And through the naming and the through naming the, and the, the looking awe. closely, giving it your full undivided attention, mm. what's going on here. Um, and so I think that my writing has become more grounded in, in the earth um, over mm-hmm, the decades. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I would say... I, think I was so looking too. for an other world, and now I realize the other world is in this world, and they're not, they're all whole. It's all mm-hmm, part of the mm-hmm, whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that about your poetry over the years. It's become somewhat less esoteric in a way and, and much more grounded and rooted in your environment surrounding yeah. you. Not that those two realms have become divorced, but mm-hmm. they've they've much more melded, as you say. Like it's all part of the yeah, same whole. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so. Now I, I consider myself more of an eco-poet than just someone looking for transcendence in that. Transcendence can be used in two ways. One is you want to get out of the earth and you just want to get out of your body. But it can also mean you want to be able to enter into different dimensionalities of reality mm-hmm. freely and see that they're all interconected. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that, that's, you know... That's the that's most beautiful That's where my vision. poetry, I think, comes from now. Yes. Like I, I do. I've kept dream journals and mm. oh yeah, done poems. I remember um, your dream poems now? Having all these flashbacks. Well, <laughs> I noticed during COVID when I had nothing better to do, I went through my old journals and drew out the most um, what I saw as universal um, young Jungians would call them archetypal dreams that weren't just me working out my ego problems, mm. and I put them paired them with the poems that came from them to mm. look at the difference between a, uh, the dream chron- uh, record mm. and the poem, which is usually much more crafted. Yes. But sometimes the dream record is more powerful than the poem and vice True. versa. Right. It's really interesting. It got me thinking about poets who write out of hypnagogic states or states between dreaming and waking. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and there are so many of them in the traditions and in specific poets like right or even Kublai Khan you know yeah. the, drug- <laughs> the opium dreams, <laughs> the opium dreams. <laughs> or even Berryman's dream songs you yeah. know I mean they must have originated in some way 
in a reverie, yeah, in a subconscious exactly. reverie, exactly. you know, that he and then just, you know, unraveled into these yeah. you know, hundreds of songs. Yeah, and I've noticed that, you know, some of the lines from my poems will come from a dream or, or just when I'm walking a line or, or configuration of rhythm or will, mm. will come to me. And then I'll write it down, and then the poem will emerge out of that later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we, you talked about that in um, my anthology, The Other 23 and a Half Hours, where it was all about different practices of writing, and you talked about memorization and about how you, when you're walking, that you will memorize or lines will come to you from poems that you memorized once and so forth. And so that's all yeah, part of that process. Yeah, and then at, when I first retired, I, I made a a deliberate effort to, to memorize a poem and I mm. repeat the lines over and over till I got it as I was walking. But mm-hmm. that takes my attention away a little bit from observing the trees. True, true. <laughs> How do you do both at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you have been a professor for many years. You, you draw a lot of your material or you have done over the years from research, from reading, from you know literature, from history... Um, so what do the allusions in O Lover's Tree to Plato's Symposium and Aristophanes, as well as the line adapted from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, add to our comprehension of the image of these trees and the sounds that are so redolent, and especially the last line, your aching stately pavan? Mm. So, oh, that's, that's a big question. That's a huge question. Yeah. I like to have yeah. one massive monster in uh-huh. the middle that you know either stops you in your tracks or keeps you talking for a while. Well, you know, because I... <laughs> I have a passion for literature and literary history. Um, these things I'm not trying to show off or something. Right. They're just They're part of me. And some, some um, writers will say, um, your poetry excludes me because I don't know those references. And I, I, I can understand there's all kinds of poetry. Bully for you, you say. But <laughs> I think, well, look it up, you know. Um, and I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> Why should you change yourself? Yeah. Because somebody doesn't understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I was, um, well, Romeo and Juliet, first of all, are, you know, it's the line, um, what is the line? Um, uh, the palm to palm. Yeah, like the holy palm, palm to palm. Kiss. It's comes from the first act of the of Shakespeare's <laughs> Romeo and Juliet when they first yes. meet and they're dancing this pavan, which yes. is a stately Renaissance dance. But there's also all kinds of plays on palms touching. Mm. And when uh, pilgrims would go on these pilgrimages, they would bring palm branches and lay them at the site where the uh, um, the saint had died. Yes, yes. So there's a play on the hand, the palm, and the palm. And palm. the palms, yes. And the then palm there's tree. also the idea that they they were flirting with each other, and they're, it's erotic, and yes. it's about kissing in palms. Yes. And, yeah, and yet it's delicate, but it's bond. but it's even Juliet, the female, who's who's making the little joke about the palm touching and everything. Oh, there's Rosie barking at Claire. Yeah, yeah, that's my <laughs> beloved Rosie. That the, this is the the ambiance and the environment that we're trying to create. It's all about reality. Yeah. We're slurping our lemon ginger tea now. Here we go, slurping yeah. the tea. And also, Rosie is my walking companion. That's right, she is. Yeah. She's a, she's a part creator of Susan's mm-hmm. poems. But back to the poem. <laughs> back to the um, poem. It seemed to me that the two trees intertwined were mm. like lovers. and That's quite obvious. But I also thought at the time that that forest might be logged. Oh, and that right. They, 
it, it ties to the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet that that those two lovers could could die. Mm. And but I wanted the outcome to be different. So yes. it's like I wanted to rewrite the tragedy and hope that it could be With an alternate ending. An alternate yeah. ending. But I was totally in a state of unknowing, and I had to go into the efforts to save the forest that tied to poetry not holding on to outcomes but right. just looking at the process the process like but, I but do you see do these poems as a, i mean because you did save the forest so i, I mean, didn't save it well it was a whole community yes and other but you people. were one of the spearheaders and i mean your poems they're they're kind of magic to me in that sense or kind of a spell towards even though you didn't want to think of the end you know yeah they, they have that and, energy and, and power magic. yeah yeah and there were synchronicitous things that happen. A lot of people felt that. And my, my contribution was mainly the Hanshan poetry, uh, you know, gathering yes. poems and putting them in the trees. But I also or helped organize uh, poetry in the park and mm -hmm. poetry readings. And I also spoke at the township council. Mm. But there were scientists, there were environmentalists, there were um, students from the Langley School of Fine Arts and Trinity Western who came and did art things, photography, mm -hmm, coffee house mm -hmm. things, and all of those things got the, into the media. The poems paired with the paintings yeah. and so yeah, forth. Yeah, and Robert Bateman yeah. came and oh, spoke. Oh, right. And he's, he came and said um, they were going to uh, sell the land to developers and uh, build a, use the money to build a recreation center in Aldergrove. And he's standing there with two kids under this big tree. And he says, this is the recreation center right here. And That's he points right. his thumbs down to the ground. And oh, that went to the Globe and Mail. Beautiful. So there were fortuitous things that I couldn't have planned. But Mark and I, my husband, bringing in his environmental friends, his um, ecologist and, and re scientist and everything, uh, it was definitely a collaboration that made uh, sense of of our being together, like you know, mm -hmm. and, the, um, the, the collective. Yeah, we would just finish one thing and then we we go on and try to do the something else to get more attention to it. Yeah, and you were saying how much energy that yeah. gave you that sense of yeah. that the poetry was itself, but it was also part of something much larger. Yeah. But there was a local choir that went in at Christmas and sang. We had nothing to do with that. There were yeah. lots of other things, and uh, but they all generated from each other. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, you each give each other the the ability to create yeah. in those situations, yeah. right? But some other people who've tried to save places unsuccessfully, uh, we feel we were very fortunate because it wasn't private land; it yes. was belonged to the township, right. and we just had to uh, shame the politicians so much <laughs> that they <laughs> offered to um, save sixty percent of it. Yes, and then a widow who who saw all the. Uh, uh, sort of press around right step forward and said no i want it completely saved and she purchased a hundred percent of it and so it was money and, and shaming and yeah, art and, and so mrs blau deserves great thanks for, yes for the park being a park but back to the but the sounds the sounds and the illusions and the references yeah. let's just okay, go back well, there and... there's just look i was aware of i always read my poems aloud as i'm writing yes. you know for, um, like poetry instance, is an oral art form. Yeah, even forest and activist, right, uh -huh. from the beginning. And I also, and, um, oh, you can find splitting, so many reuniting, um, 
So many echoes. Yeah, yeah, we could go through them. But yeah. um, the other thing was I chose two line stanzas. Yeah, the couplets. Yeah, the couplets yeah. to create the sense of the yoking of the two yes. lovers. There we but go. But I end with one final separate line to show that they are truly one. Right. Yeah, okay. so I was conscious of yes. that. Yes, so form and Form and function sound and, and musicality. Sound. Yeah, and also the, the subject matter. They are not separable from each other. Yeah. You're always thinking of that. The sounds, the illusions, the references, the form... You can't divide them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. It's organic. Yeah, so the crafting is just as important as the initial reception, but you do have to have that flow. Something has to flow in that that you can sort of ride on and, you and have to hear it. go back. Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Exactly. That's where the musicality comes in. Yes, that's and right. That's right. Trust think, your ear. I think a poem is... I often talk about the... Um, the sounds, the musicality, but also the silences, mm, you know, the pauses. That's the right. Caesuras or the... Yeah, the lacunas. Or, or the yeah. ends of lines mm, where there's a the pause. The enjambments, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, that's what's so fascinating to me in the process. And I, I do, in my journals, I can look back and see my drafts. But mm. since I started um, composing more on on uh, computer... You don't see the process I do much. the beginning, the first draft or two... But then I don't save all my drafts, uh -huh, so uh -huh. you know I don't have as many. But it's how many drafts would you say? Uh, is there any kind of typical poem that would go through a certain number of drafts, or you know some will come as a whole, some will take years? Mm, yeah, you know? I think all of the above. Yeah. Some come very quickly, and I'm sort of satisfied with them. And mm -hmm. longer ones like Sestinas and um, I've written form poems oh, like yes. Pantoums and. Mm -hmm. Triolets and have you written a, a canzoni? No. Oh, okay. it's I even more brutal some. than a sestina. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but um, Blow says yes. Yeah, those take a little longer because you you're working with repetitions and rhymes that are given to you, and you yes. But I patterns. find it very rewarding. But I also have moved recently into more spacing across the page, more uh, what you know, extensions of free verse and mm. like the Cezanne poems I did, I was trying to create an analogy between his paintings where he even leaves parts of the canvas bare. Yes. And, um, and my words. So I would have splotches of words here and there and right. trying to ca capture how he handled the canvas. Uh -huh. So it depends Which ends on up looking the very postmodern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say my work is, it started out when I was a teenager being, um, uh, rhymed and metered mm -hmm, almost mm -hmm. exclusively. And then as I got into university, I discovered the free verse movement. But I was also I've the written, 60s and 70s, yeah, so exactly. you were just a wild child. None of that um, <laughs> sing-song stuff for me then. But then I came back to seeing yes, the value of forms that's right. and wanting to, to try them again. Yeah. But it's through form it, it's poetry essential. I uh, came to poetry. Yeah. And I think it's, it should be part of every poet's, you know, toolbox. Yeah. If you don't know these forms and you don't know these meters, you're missing out on so many opportunities. Yeah, even if you don't want to write them, yeah, you, you still might want to read them. Or, yeah, you might want to read them or, or just know that they're there, you it's, know? There's diff there's, I respect spoken word, rap, everything, but it's like poetry is, is as biodiverse oh. as, as nature. Absolutely. And so, you know, I just... 
think that we can't judge each other's work. We need to see what's what the person's trying to do and yeah. how yeah. how they look at the ecosystem and in you that know. framework. Yes, precisely. So in terms of your tree image, which is so dense and full of beautiful textures and layers, I noted the personification of the lovers with their lichen knees and the oh, way that yeah. you see them as performing a courtly dance. So is this personification, in a sense, um, connected to our ability to bond to nature as humans? And is a truly ecological poetry possible within the personification? Or is this a step towards perhaps an ecological uh, poem? Well, maybe it's both because mm. it's referring to a, a certain play and, mm -hmm. a, and certain allusions in that play, uh, Palmer's Kiss and so on. But I guess they were kissing stones. <laughs> 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 but the lichen and knees certainly brings it in, and that the two lovers are trees. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I just find it very fascinating, you know, the question as to whether, say, for instance, I, I wrote an essay once on, say, Don Demansky and Don Mackay mm -hmm. versus uh, Dion Brand and Di Brandt in terms of how they... Uh, talk about nature mm -hmm. and whether, you know, say for instance, Don Mackay's greater tendency to personify birds, for uh -huh. instance, is that bringing us closer to nature or is it putting that veil in that, you know, that kind of gap uh -huh. between ourselves and nature and saying we can't possibly access nature. So we'll look at it through our own lens. Yeah. So I well, find there is a danger of looking at nature through all these civilized lenses um, and not actually just giving space to let that that bird speak to you you know mm -hmm. um, but like in the poem I have the heartwood of a tree husk which would be the outer bark and yes. everything um, but then torsos um, a tree's a trunk can be like a torso. Yes, so you can absolutely. See the the yes. parallels. Um, yes. So I think I try to work through it. Um, but I was also working through what was happening with the chainsaws. Yes. And, and the outer world, the civilized world's impact, negative impact on the trees, the, mm -hmm. the brutality of it. Because mm -hmm. we can't separate yeah. ourselves from that either. Yeah. We can't look at nature through the naive... Yeah lens we have yeah. to look at it through how it's been problematized yeah you know but to be frank i think um for me i'm doing both yes both and rather than that's right trying to exclusively just get all these literary illusions and and civilized things out out of the picture you know because that would seem I almost just, artificial because yeah, that's part of your that's mind part of who i am that's right but I, there has to be enough grounding in it that it's not abstract mm. or can, just a bunch of concepts. Yes, because then it becomes tangible. Yeah, and it's yeah. Then it's that just ideas. Process. It's not. It's not the world. It's not ex phenomenological. I would say, and mm. I, I do want it to be grounded in that way. But I think I have, like I said, because I was this dreamy child who wanted to escape the world of my parents fighting and stuff. I tended to, to, to want to drift off into mm. a more idealized world. So I think my my journey as a poet has been moving more and more toward being here now mm. and then seeing the mystery that could open out into larger realities, but from where I am now rather than escaping, you know. Mm-hmm. Susan McCaslin doesn't want to escape anymore. We're going to be back in a few minutes.
And we're back with poet Susan McCaslin. So I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every Canadian poet. The first one is, and you've talked a little bit about this uh, at our first question that I asked you about the poem, where, how did you start as a poet? And now, Leap, where are you today? Oh, okay. So how did you start to write poetry? How did you start to publish? Yeah, well, I was writing little uh, verses in elementary school, you know, a Halloween poem or something like that, like a lot of kids do. But I really loved loved doing that. And and then because of my early reading, um, at some point, I wanted to emulate what I was... The language I was enjoying so much, I wouldn't have put it that way mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. But I thought, wow, you know, I wish I could do that, you know. And it, I think it really came to the fore in grade uh, seven. Mm. Uh, I think I was 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, I had a Spanish teacher who was also my English teacher, Mr. Lemieux. And he assigned, every, everyone had to write a poem. So I wrote a poem a rhymed piece of doggerel <laughs> <laughs> about a cat. <laughs> what was it, Susan? It was called um, Our Cat. <laughs> Brilliant. Genius. <laughs> do, you, do you have it memorized? Can yeah, you? I do, oh, I okay. think. Okay, when our cat... Okay, I might stumble. That's over. fine. Lies, when our cat lies before the hearth, she's quite a merry sight. Her toes may curl and touch her nose with evident delight. Her body reaches for the warmth the fire blaze doth give. Um, Something about, I think, I feel that she must think it is a wondrous joy to live. She dreams, her eyes are closed, and she may dream of years so long ago when she would jump and pounce on mice in fields where daisies grow. Hmm. Um, I... She purrs with deep content. Let's see. Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) This is a long time ago. (laughs) Okay, anyway. Suddenly she rises and gets into her feet. This is... I love the daisies part. Okay. (laughs) She's going toward the kitchen to get a piece of meat. (laughs) (laughs) That carnivorous cat. I know. (laughs) Anyway, Mr. Lemieux said, did you write this poem? And I... I was sort of shocked, and like and of I course, said, yes, of course, I wrote this poem. <laughs> I would now say it's a piece of rhyme doggerel. Why are you getting so excited about it? And he he thought it was good for my age, I guess, mm-hmm. and and that era, you know, like, that was a long sure. time ago. And uh, so, in a few days, he said, you know, I ha- I believe you, and um, I would like you to be the literary editor of our student news paper oh. and it was one where you run it off a memo machine oh yeah and, mimeograph. and stap- mimeograph and staple it oh, and yeah. I had a column and so I could publish my own poems there and other people's poems and choose them oh, nice. and I still have copies of that little thing it was called the pipe squeak instead of the pip squeak <laughs> you know because it was it had bagpipes on oh. it and and gave me an identity that oh I could I could be a poet yeah and then it only takes course, one teacher right yeah you know? so I've been lucky with my mentors so mm-hmm. then when I got into university I took I took Spanish I was a Spanish major for two years and then mm. I switched to English and I fell in love with William Blake and the Romantics and uh, 17th century metaphysicals and, and on and on mm. and I took a course in Asian literature. Mm. 
because they had comparative literature mm. and things going on. And um, I knew by then that I wanted to be a poet. I was publishing in a, a literary magazine mm. for the campus. And then uh, when I came to SFU, mm-hmm. Robin Blazer was my uh, thesis. The wild pro- times at SFU. And Blazer was a poet. And mm. while he, he was going through my thesis, um, he also was looking at my poetry and giving me feedback. Mm. And um, he, he believed in my work, and, and that gave me support. And mm-hmm. then Lee Johnson, mm. who was my prophet at UBC, mm. he's a poet too, and he's really good at form poetry. Mm. And he was teaching me about how the uh, geometric progressions in geometry, geom- geometry of art and life, that Wordsworth embedded those geometrical oh. proportions in the prelude and really? things like this yeah. yeah and he would recite poems seasons of mist and mellow fruitfulness, fruitfulness. <laughs> <Keats> <laughs> Ode to Autumn. but um, he was wonderful and yeah. he just had a deep love of poetry and we're still friends oh yeah that's so and great so I think I've been very lucky to have and then I've had female mentors like PK Page mm-hmm. and um and Sue Magowski, mm-hmm. and um, okay, like a number of them. Elizabeth Brewster. Oh, yes. Brewster. Oh, yes. Yeah. I interviewed her for my anthology, and we talked a lot. Did you know Margaret Avis? No, I didn't, oh. un- I, unfortunately. Um, but Did you know Dorothy Livesey or any of those? Yeah. No. I knew they were around, yeah. but I was there. Miriam but, Waddington, you knew. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed her. Yeah, she was a character. She was a strong woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a good poet. Yeah. And yeah, so um I guess I just um thrived on poetry and then I've always been very lucky to have a profession where I could do the poetry in the summer, like I mm-hmm, said, or mm-hmm. um uh it it tied in my study of literature fed my poetry right. yes that was and, all interwoven and i knew yeah. actually from grade 8 i wanted to be a teacher mm. so i uh, i feel very lucky You've to lived have the had life that. you wanted yeah mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. and the passion is still there and i'm now yes. turning 75 so yes and i you know i what really, are you working on now well i have a book um called liminal poetics where i combined my um most visionary sorts of archetypal dreams with um, the poems that proceeded from them mm. with an introduction and a, uh, to, to talk about the uh, history and tradition of, mm. of dream work and hypnagogic states and poets. Mm. Um, it's not an academic work, but mm. it, it does bring those together. It's a hybrid work. Right. And at first I, I felt I was just doing it for my own... Uh, interest and for the intrinsic value of mm. it during COVID. Right. But recently, some people have looked at it and said it's only about eighty pages. It's not a long book. Right. But it might be publishable as a short book. Mm. So that and then I think the pandemic took a lot of people in interesting divergent directions and allowed them either more time or more headspace or just the desire to do something completely different. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. For me, I, I've been keeping journals since 1969, mm. and it gave me time to reread through them, and I found some old poems oh. that I actually 
never published, but I, I reworked them. Oh. And I may try to pass them on. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to know the difference. <laughs> yeah, so... <sighs> What was the second part of the question? No, it was what, what, where are you today? Where am I today? Yeah, okay. yeah. Since where you've been refired, I remember when you first retired that you were doing so many readings and publishing so much and you were all over the place. It seemed, yeah, you know? so where that I am was, now That is, was wonderful. Um, since COVID, I've um, slowed down. Like I used to tour. Mm-hmm. And the last tour I did, bunking in with friends uh that's enough already my way around the city of toronto uh, uh, getting lost um i just i got pneumonia on the plane oh no i was sick for three weeks and oh, i thought it's I not can't fun do anymore this. so now i'm hoping actually i will go to local readings You're right and i love to be in person mm-hmm. but i'm not sure like if they can have hybrid events where some people can zoom in and some can be in person <laughs> I may choose to zoom in yeah. um, if that's possible, but I am keen to... Gives options. I do feel... Uh, I, I have had sort of mild depression for being not enough hugs from friends sure, being isolated. Of course. And even today I was nervous to be interviewed because I thought, I have to be in person with somebody, you know, uh-huh. not just talking on the screen to Scott Narver. You know, yes. gee, you know, I ah, felt like a teenager. And like, I hugged her. I hugged her. <laughs> Twice, <laughs> Catherine. I have to say, you—you were you the poet among my students who took her poetry the furthest, and I just want to say that publicly. Thank and you, Susan. I really value your work, and I know, I'm so an not, obsessed person. <laughs> and I think you're doing a wonderful um, service to the poetry community by having these podcasts. Mm. Yeah, I think that the more that we connect with other poets in real ways, tangible ways, through readings, reviews, interviews, the the richer our poetry community is going to be. I yeah. mean, you know, it's not just about, in fact, it really shouldn't be about, here's my opinion yet again, about the star system uh-huh. in poetry. What has that got to do with poetry? Exactly, you know, it's yeah. an art form. Yeah, so, yeah which is even though I've sacred. published a lot, I and won a few prizes, and I, I'm not a GG winner or anything like that. What but does this mean? It does, to me, <laughs> for a while, I thought, oh, am I left behind or what? You yeah, know? that's but how we're supposed to, to feel. I'm happy to see the younger generation come forward, and I, I don't want any more um, than I've got. I, if I can only keep writing and enjoy the process, the intrinsic value of it, Definitely. that's what really matters to me. That's right. Exactly. You so that, that feeds right into my final oh. question here. Tell me what you would change about the Canadian poetry scene and what you still love about this often strange world. Oh, okay. Well, I think I may, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but it's the sense that some people um, feel um, left out mm. because I make references to classical or right. biblical or Gnostic, esoteric, yes. spiritual traditions. And at one reading I gave, one young woman just said, I, I just don't get your poetry. I, I feel shut out and excluded. And she seemed angry. Oh. And I just said, um, well, you know, there's poetry is biodiverse, just like That's we have right. a biodiverse ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I, re- I, I am not a rap artist or a, a spoken word artist, yeah. but I respect what they're doing and, and can learn from exactly. it. Exactly. And I think we need to celebrate the differences. And then maybe if you wanted to look something up on Google, it wouldn't 
Yeah, you know, it wouldn't hurt you. Wouldn't hurt. <laughs> so I guess my pet peeve is the cancel culture oh. movement. You don't need history. You know, you just tweet. You have a really yeah. short, short yeah, attention span. Simplify everything down to the absolute basic. Knowing anything about Shakespeare might might Oof. do you some damage. You yeah, know? <laughs> I, I'm exaggerating. But, yeah, but it's true. Um, There's been all kinds everybody. of great books canceled. Yeah. You yeah. know, like To um, Kill a Mockingbird. You know, say. Yeah, but we have new stuff coming out. We need to pay attention to. But I think the past and the present are interrelated. Yeah. Exactly. And if you, you can't really separate them. No. And they're all part of that fabric. More, go more deeply into uh, some allusions to Romeo and Juliet than someone else. Uh, but some rappers may have some stuff I don't know that would be yeah. interesting. You know? Yeah, some allusions so, and references yeah, from their so cultural you know, I see standpoint. Celebrate Viva la difference. You know, let's, yes. let's share and. and respect each other rather than feeling we're all in these little pockets that's right and, and there is so much there's more one right there. way and the know. other thing i i celebrate now is that first nations artists uh people from different ethnicities and races are getting more attention yes. and respect and it's long overdue so mm-hmm. i really applaud that and mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. it um yeah, anything and, can make our culture, you know, yeah. more diverse and richer and more yeah. energy and more respectful, you know. It's, yeah, but it's if, a beautiful if the thing. older poets, like, I really loved, um, I did a review on Elizabeth Brewster's work because I liked it and um, and interviewed her and everything. Mm. And I wouldn't want someone like that just to be forgotten I because know. they're not in style right now. Right, you know, because they were an old white yeah. woman. But you I know, <laughs> let's people, have it all. I Why can't we have my it all? age to be dominating the? No, the scene. that's boring that's too. Not, I right? Want that <laughs> <laughs> like art should never be dominated by any one voice or yeah. vision of the universe. Yeah, you know, or, yeah. or set of illusions or references. Yeah, so I'm. The things are much more complex complex now, which mm. is good, but then it can have us break down into these um, factions mm-hmm. where we don't like each other. Sort of like with the anti-vaxxer thing, it, mm-hmm. it, it can well, get the black and white and the pros violent, and cons, but, and you know, yeah, people aren't listening to each other; they're yeah, just reacting, yeah. and then yeah. we're diminished. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you still love about, so you love the diversity of the poetry scene, but you are, you would change the closed-mindedness that can occur yeah, sometimes? That, that some people can have, or even I could maybe have, you know. Um, I think it's human. There's yeah, going to be something your something mind is closed you, to and something you're, you're open to, you, or hopefully many things. Yeah, <laughs> and some awareness of the, the traditions going way back are helpful because um, we're, We've had this relation with nature and, and humanity, and we have to look at what, where, how we've gotten to where we are now, even mm-hmm. if it's a, mm-hmm. um, looking at, at the dark side of it. Yes. You know? Yes. The colonization, the... Um, right. Genocides, the, yes. the war, like... We can't shut our eyes to any of we it. We need to have history. I mean, most everyone will say... Mm-hmm. We need that. Mm-hmm. We can't forget the Holocaust, you mm-hmm. know. And what place does the imagination play in that? Like the historical imagination, the ecological imagination. Yeah. You know, you can't imagine the past. How do you uh-huh. change the future? Uh-huh. And just like time and eternity, I can't separate anymore. I can't separate past, present, and future mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. you know. It's all one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's a tough time during this pandemic and... I know people feel 
frustrated and isolated. I do too. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, there's been some family tensions because of it. And people, you know, if we can only respect each other mm-hmm. and, and not, uh, just become angry all the time, I think, and have some hope too, as well as, and how does poetry and art create that hope just to finish up with that? Well, I think that, that there, with the imagination or imaginal world, mm. you, there's always openings to newness. And, mm. and there's a sense of evolution and progress, not in the industrial sense, yes. but <laughs> that there's a mystery. I, I want to bring it to mystery, that it, the unknowing is not a bad thing. It's, mm. it's opening to awe and wonder and mystery. And, and where are we? And there's always something as dark as it can get, the, the nothingness can be a, a, a good nothingness, mm. a nada. You know, the, um, in Eastern religions, you have being in nothingness or like yin-yang. You yes, know, the, or like the end of Wallace Stevens' snowman, and, right? And fullness, yeah. The nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Yeah, maybe we have to go through the dark nights of the soul or into the, the, the darkness to... Progress. I mean, we all are born here, and we go through that dark tunnel of the birth thing, and here we are. Mm-hmm. And the mystery of how we leave and where we go is still a mystery too, and and so we we're all we all share that, and then we share that with the other creatures. They, yes. You know, I think the main thing that's changed for me is the realization of how much, how deeply anthropomorphism. Man is the measure of all things. Mm, Man, mm-hmm. humans, what's are dominated everything. The top of the, the hierarchy, the, uh, hierarchy yeah. of chain of being. Yes, I'm so glad that that's being challenged now through deep, deep ecology and so on. That mm-hmm. that we have so much to learn from the animals, the creatures, the birds, rocks from stones. They they all have a sort of sentience. They're all alive and part of the universe. And so, if we take our place in that way, instead of trying to think we still have, we're still smarter. Uh, it's obvious we're not smarter because of the way we're wrecking the environment. <laughs> Obviously. So, you yes. know, I, I think that we, we can't, we don't know whether we can overcome this juncture, but we, we can do our best, you know, like sell, doing the force, you don't know the outcome, but you've got to do what you've got to do. Yes. And join community to do that so that poetry is not just, um, you know, Auden said poetry does... What is it? It, it, it does nothing, basically. Like, it yeah. exists in this, you yeah. know, abyss, basically. At the, but I, I always read it you as nothing. You around, you know? In a good way, right? Yeah. I, I always thought it as, as, as nothing, and that nothing is a state of any, where anything can happen. Yeah. It survives in the valley of its own making, That's what right? I want to say. That, like, for John of the Cross, mm-hmm. entering the nada, the nothingness, was the opening to rebirth. Yes. So... Maybe having nothing happen. I think Eastern religions get this more. Absolutely. What can be spoken and what can't be spoken and what we can suggest um, and uh, rather than describe or put into a, a bag of theology or a package of concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's the, it's, we can experience something new emerging out of that nothingness. And be part of, we are part of that, you know. That's a beautiful place to end. Yeah. We can experience something emerging out of that nothingness. Thank you so much, Susan McCaslin. Oh, you're welcome, Catherine. <laughs> oh. You've been listening 
to miss lyrics, poetry outlaws. Don't forget to support her on Patreon. And stay fierce, word musicians.